Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. In this episode, we have part two of Murder's Mandate by W.T. Ballard, which originally appeared in the September 1945 Thrilling Detective. This story is also included in the Brick Pickle Media book, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales, Volume 1. This book, along with Volumes 2 and 3, is now available in print and ebook formats. It features some of the best pulp stories from the pages of Thrilling Detective. It can be ordered from Amazon or any other bookstore, and you can get a discounted price by ordering direct from our website. That link is in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books in our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 3 Deal for Half a Million The big horseshoe sign above the door glittered as if it were studded with real diamonds instead of light bulbs. Boyd took a look at it from the far side of Fremont before crossing the crowded street. The town had grown since he had been here last. Two or three big stores gave it a really businesslike look in spite of the string of gambling clubs, saloons, and restaurants. The Horseshoe Club was something different. Vegas had nightclubs before, mostly beyond the limits of the dusty town. But this was a nightclub in the center of the city, a club patterned after the early concert saloons of frontier days. Boyd crossed the street and pushed open the door. To the right was a long bar, flanked by two roulette wheels and a crap layout. For even here, gambling held sway. But it was not the main attraction. The room was filled with small tables, and at the end, there was a stage. A modern swing band filled one end of the platform, and the leader acted as master of ceremonies for the show. It was strictly modern, and burlesque was on the boards, and Boyd walked in. The place was crowded. Smoke made long, heavy, bluish layers beneath the ceiling. Hurrying waitresses kept the beer mugs, and the crowded tables filled. The noise of the place was almost deafening, but before Boyd had reached the bar, it died away to a mere murmur. Even the waitresses stilled the clinking of the glasses on the trays as the master of ceremonies stepped toward the center of the stage. All right, boys and girls, what do you want? We want Laura. It was a shout which shook the blue layers of tobacco smoke and threatened to lift the ceiling. Give us Laura. You've got her. The announcer spread his hands. The drums roared and a slide man went after a high note as the band swung to the trolley song. Laura appeared suddenly from the wing. She was riding on a child's toy streetcar, the bell clanging loudly. Customers took up the beat with the heavy glass beer mugs. The place was bedlam, then all was still as the girl swung free of the toy and sang. She could sing and she could dance. Sam Boyd had seen a lot worse acts along the strip in Hollywood. The crowd loved it. They loved her and let the world know it. There must have been 500 in the room. Workers, soldiers, tourists, all mixed up and yelling for the blonde who had stopped the show. The girl had just danced off into the wings. There was a door at the end of the bar, which evidently led backstage. Sam Boyd set his glass in the bar and made toward it. Inside the door was a man. He was young, dark-haired. He sat on a tilted chair, his feet propped against the opposite wall so his legs blocked the passage. He looked up, saw Boyd in the curtain entrance, and failed to smile. Wrong door, Mac. Beat it. Boyd looked at him and decided he didn't like what he saw. He took a step forward. The seated man tried to reach under his coat and get up at the same time. He could have been reaching for a match. Boyd had no way of knowing he wasn't one to take chances. His big hand shot out, caught the man's right foot before the fellow could lower it to the floor, and heaved. The man stopped reaching under his coat and clawed the air in a desperate effort to save his balance. He failed, landing against the dirty floor on the back of his neck. Boyd knelt on his chest, found the gun which the man's groping fingers had failed to reach, and transferred it to his own pocket. Then he rose, watching his victim climb slowly to his feet. Most of the fight had disappeared from the dark-haired man, but he tried the bluster. Say, what, what are you trying to do? I did it, said Boyd gently. 
Next time a gentleman comes calling on a lady, don't play tough, chum. Someone might misunderstand. Someone might feed you your gun and make you like it. Now, where's Laura's room? The man hesitated and Boyd raised a big hand for a backward cuff. The man remembered. Orders are she ain't to be bothered. I'm giving the orders. Where's the room? The man told him and Boyd pushed on down the passage with never a backward look. He paused before the door of the girl's dressing room and his big knuckles beat out a steady tattoo. Come in, Jack. Her voice was not distinct. Boyd opened the door. It isn't Jack. He said and stepped in, shutting the door behind him. Laura had been standing with her back to the door, staring through the dark window. She turned now and there was no surprise, no expression of any kind on her face. Hi, Mac. I've been expecting you to show up. Have you? Said Sam Boyd. He was thinking she was one of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen. Beautiful and dangerous. Sure. Ever since I heard Roger Bowman got bumped. How come you didn't tell the cops what little act I put on for you this afternoon? Maybe I like the color of your eyes. She gave him a long, careful look. Sing another tune, mister. Little Laura's been at this racket a long spell now. You aren't the type to go soft for a dame. Maybe I thought they wouldn't believe me. Sure, and maybe you thought you'd get the little photostat back and no one would find out your girlfriend's dad had played a double game with the Nazis. You guessed too well, he said. Her laugh had the tinkly sound of breaking glass. Now you're getting smart. Play it straight, little Lauren. We'll all live long and be healthy. How much is a little piece of shiny paper worth? Sam Boyd stuck one hand into his pocket, drew forth some change, a quarter, two dimes, and several pennies. Considered them carefully and selected one of the dimes and extended it toward the girl. Her blue eyes glittered a little. Look, Mac, you think you're a rugged character, but you aren't rugged enough to play games with little Laura. I know my cards, Mac. I'm holding them in this and I'm going to cash in. Are you? What would the cops do if I told them about the photostat? If I suggested that maybe you kill Bowman to get possession of it? That's silly. I didn't kill Roger Bowman. I rode home with him and he loaned me the car to come back to town. And you've got the photostat. Seems a little strange that Bowman wouldn't go to all the trouble he did to get it and then leave it with you. She smirked. That's what he did, though. He was going to meet someone at the house and he didn't want to have it with him. He gave it to me for safekeeping. Her words still didn't make sense and Sam Boyd said so. I think I'll tell the cops. It'll be hard on Miss Norcross, but better that the world find out about her father than that the cops stretch my neck for a killing I didn't do. Who did Bowman meet at the house? Do you know? Sure. He met his murderer. All you've got to do is decide who that is. It isn't my business. I'm going to spill to the cops. He started to turn, but even as he did, the door behind him opened. You ain't going to tell the cops one thing, said a voice. It was a high voice, a little shrill, but it matched its owner perfectly. He was a little man, barely five feet, yet so well proportioned they looked like a bantam fighting cock. Black hair, heavy beard, so although he'd shaved closely only a short time before, his cheeks were blue-black. Once seen, no one ever forgot Jack Dillon, and Boyd had seen him any number of times. Dillon had played many small roles in pictures, had at one time led a band composed of men not larger than he was. But Boyd had not associated him with the name of the horseshoe's owner until Dillon came into the room. So it's you. It's me. There was a full foot difference in their height. Dillon would almost have had to stand on a chair to reach Boyd's jaw, but nothing in the man's attitude showed that he was conscious of the difference in their size. I had a hunch it was you when Laura spoke about a Boyd, 
You always manage to get yourself in trouble. Am I in trouble? Sam Boyd managed to sound faintly surprised. Mister, you never know what trouble was until you came to town. You're into your neck now, and unless you get some help, you'll be in over your ears. Help from whom? Me. I got this town right where I want it. When I snap my fingers, it rolls over and says uncle. You don't say. You mean if you give the word, the murder rap the cops are holding over my head would be fixed? Like that. The little man was certain of himself. He winked at the blonde when he thought Sam Boyd was not looking. Swell. I always knew you were my pal. Just call that old chief up and fix things, will you? Not so fast. Dylan drew a long ivory cigarette holder from his breast pocket, fitted a smoke into its end, and lit it carefully. The holder was so long that Boyd feared it might overbalance the little man who held it up at a cocky angle and surveyed Boyd through the smoke. You think we're dumb? Oh, don't bother to deny it. I know how your mind works, but we aren't. We realize the company Roger Bowman controlled is worth a great deal of money. Wasn't such a large company before the war, but now it's expanded so it's one of the big three or four in the industry. So, said Boyd. He stole a glance toward the blonde, but her full attention was on the little man. So, and Miss Norcross has a good chance of winning her case in court, of getting back what Bowman took from her father. If we don't tell what we know about that photostat. Fine, but you're overlooking one thing, my miniature friend. What about the original letter? Dylan stopped him by raising both hands, small palms outward. We thought of that. Even now, my men are taking steps to get it. You know where it is? Dylan gave him a thin-lipped smile. Laura here was a friend of Mr. Bowman's. He told her things which he told a few people. You see, we have things under control. Very good control. All you have to do is make your deal with us. And the deal is? Half a million dollars. In spite of his composure, his tone quavered a little as he mentioned the sum. A mere half million. Fine. You want it in dollar bills? Dylan got mad. You think you're humorous? You think you don't need us, but you'll find out, you and that high and mighty Norcross dame. You'll come to us, both of you crawling on your knees. I tell you, we got things arranged. You wouldn't have had a hand in arranging Bowman's death, would you? Boyd was no longer smiling. You wouldn't have figured this all out and then rubbed Bowman just to put yourself in a trading position? Why, you... Dylan clawed at his coat. Out! Boyd reached out a big hand. He brushed the cigarette holder out of the way and seized Dylan's lapels, lifting the man till the small shoes were clear of the floor. Stop reaching. If you get that gun out, I'll make you eat it. He turned suddenly, swung Dylan in a circle, and let go of his holes as the small man crashed into the blonde, just as she straightened from the dressing table, a gun in her hand. Both of them went down a tangle of arms and legs. Boyd stooped and picked up both guns. He made no effort to assist either of his victims to their feet. You two have the wrong slant. Maybe you can do business with Miss Norcross. You'll have to talk to her. But I don't enter into it. Not at all. He turned and walked out. The same guard was seated beside the entrance, his feet blocking the passage. When he saw Boyd coming, he leaped up. Boyd half expected trouble, but the guard made no effort to block his progress. After Boyd had passed, he paused in the doorway, hesitated for an instant, then drew the man's gun from his pocket. Here. I didn't mean to keep this so long. You may need it later. Need it bad to put a bolt between my shoulders. He thrust the gun into the startled man's hands and left the place. Chapter 4. Laura Springs a Surprise Back at his hotel, the clerk stopped Sam Boyd. There's a man waiting for your room, Mr. Boyd. He seemed to think it was all right if he went up. 
Boyd nodded and walked across the lobby toward the elevator. The man waiting in his room was lawyer Tony Foster, his employer. Foster was sitting in the easy chair in the corner of the room, his feet on the bed. I got a plane as soon as your wire came. I was lucky I got here 20 minutes ago. You'd have been lucky if the plane had taken you the other way, Boyd grunted. The lawyer became concerned. As bad as that? Worse. The cops can't make up their minds, but they have a sneaking hunch that I did for Bowman and that Miss Norcross hired me to do it. She's sweet. Who? The lawyer seemed amused. The case? The girl, said Boyd. She's living back in the dark ages when women were women and didn't carry welding torches, but nothing breaks her nerve. Even being tied up for hours in that closet didn't seem to face her. There's a lot of things I don't get. Why did Bowman give us that photostat and then take all the trouble to make certain Miss Norcross didn't see it? Only Bowman could answer that. And he's dead. We've got other little playmates taking a hand in the game, too. The lawyer straightened with interest. Who? Boyd told him about the blonde and Dylan. I don't know whether you remember the little runt or not. He was around L.A. up until a couple years ago. He's a bad hombre for my money. If he saw a chance at a dishonest dollar, he wouldn't have hesitated to beat him Bowman's head. Foster was interested. Think you did it? The best we've got so far, Boyd admitted. He's got kind of a warped brain. Might have figured that with Roger Bowman out of the way, he could cut in on this Norcross deal. He even offered to sell me the photostat and the original letter. Sir seemed startled. You mean he has them both? He's got the photostat, Boyd said, and he claims that he has one of the men out picking up the letter. Tell me, he went on, how much chance would the Norcross girl have of upsetting the sale, of getting back part of the company without that letter? Before Bowman died, I've said she had an excellent chance, Foster said. Her father was in poor health at the time he signed that letter. And almost blind, Boyd cut in. The lawyer nodded. And almost blind. Besides which, Bowman had Norcross out at his ranch at the time of the sale. Anne was in Florida doing war work. And you? How come you weren't around to protect their interest? I was in Washington, Foster explained. I didn't know anything about the sale until months after it happened. But then there wasn't any use in saying anything in Norcross. He was a sick man. The girl doesn't believe her father even knew what was in the letter he signed. Boyd pointed out. How blind was he at the time? Foster snapped his long fingers. I never thought of that. Of course she's right. Let these people produce their photostat. Let them show the original letter if they can. We'll call Norcross's doctor. We'll laugh their letter out of court. The fight won't be as hard as it was before Bowen died. He didn't have any heirs. Oh, yes, he did. Both men had been so intent on the conversation they had not been conscious that Boyd's door was not quite latched that someone was standing outside it. Boyd crossed the room in three strides and jerked the door wide. Laura was standing in the hall, her white dress covered with a short mink coat. She looked more beautiful than ever. In fact, as beautiful as any woman Boyd had ever seen. Foster's eyes widened as she came in. She might have been a queen or a top-flight movie star from the way she looked around casually. Who's this? Foster said. This, Boyd said, is Miss Laura Bingham, better known as simply Laura. Laura, Mr. Foster, the Norcross attorney. The girl inclined her sleek blonde head, looking at Foster's heavily lined face with interest. He's cute, she said. Boyd would hardly have termed his boss cute. He could think of a number of adjectives which would have fitted the lawyer better. But Foster did not seem to mind. He grinned at the girl, but his eyes were cool and watchful and not smiling. So, Roger Bowman left an heir. Would you mind telling us who? The girl did not smile. Me? How do you like those apples, Uncle? I'm his wife. His wife? Both stared at her, but if she was conscious of their stare, she gave no sign. 
There was a handbag under her arm. From it, she extracted a folded paper, which she handed to Foster. He opened it wordlessly and peered over his shoulder. Boyd saw that it was a marriage license. Subconsciously, he noted the date had been issued that morning. Boyd sensed Foster's surprise. It wasn't anything the lawyer did or said. He said nothing. He merely folded the paper carefully and passed it back to the girl. She seemed a little disappointed by his reaction. Aren't you going to say anything? What's there to say as far as that license and the fake ceremony are concerned? It wasn't fake. Roger had been after me to marry him for a long time. So you chose the day he died to say yes? There was a tinge of sarcasm in Foster's voice. She was sullen. I didn't know this ape, she indicated Boyd with a nod of her blonde head, was going to bash Roger's brains out, but since that happened, I'm not going to let some little chick go into court and do me out of my rights. I am Roger's widow, and what was his is mine. That is for the courts to decide, said Foster. Good night, please. She bit her lower lip. It was evident that she had expected a much different reception. When you change your mind, I'll be out at Roger's, my ranch. You can come to me next time. The door slammed and Boyd and Foster looked at each other. See what I mean? said Boyd. The lawyer nodded thoughtfully. They knew they moved fast. Do you suppose she was really married to him? Boyd shrugged. From what I've seen of this country, they could probably fake the license, get some snide justice of peace to say he married them, and make it stick. The lawyer shrugged, glancing at his watch. I've got a date to meet at Norcross in the lobby in ten minutes. As far as I can see, there's no use us poking into Bowman murder. It isn't our business. Boyd's mouth was bitter. It's not your business, he said, but the chief of police is making it mine. He's trying to put me right in the middle, and for my money, he's making a good job of it. A very good job indeed. The airport was long and windy and deserted. Sam Boyd had taxied to the field and asked for the pilot who had flown the special plane in from Los Angeles an hour ago. The pilot was long and thin and bitter. He wasn't bitter at Boyd, merely at age, which put him to piloting pleasure craft while other men flew fighters. Boyd had not finished talking to the pilot when a shadow moved across from the operations building and joined him. The man was not a uniform, but he had no need to be. Your name Boyd, he snapped. Boyd's impulse was to tell him the name was Nopke, that the K was silent as in cat. He liked the name Nopke and had always meant to use it at some time, but this time didn't seem to be just right. This cat looked smart. Yes, I'm Boyd, he said instead. What would you be doing out here? Boyd spread his hands. Trying to talk this gentleman to give me a ride to L.A. Anything wrong with that? For you, yes. The cop found a toothpick in his vest pocket and used it thoughtfully. So a little bit of murder you're concerned in. The chief wouldn't like it if you went around taking plane rides before it's cleared up. Would you like to ride back to town with me? Boyd said that he wouldn't like to, but that he would. I'm an agreeable fellow, he added, as they reached a squad car and climbed in. My friends all call me Sunshine. You wouldn't care to call me Sunshine, would you? The cop didn't answer. It was obvious that he considered his passenger a screwball and was a little leery of screwballs. Fremont Street was ablaze with lights as they drove along and Boyd glanced at his watch. It was after 12. That was the one thing he liked about this town. It never went to bed. He said goodbye pleasantly to his driver before the hotel and was warned to keep out of trouble. Boyd nodded. He intended to do just that. He walked into the hotel lobby and he halted at the sight of Ann Norcross, huddled in one of the leather chairs. She rose and met his questioning look. I'm waiting for Mr. Foster and I'm beginning to worry. Boyd showed his surprise. I thought Foster was going to meet you here. He did, an hour and a half ago. He told me what happened and we agreed that if this man Dylan would listen to a reasonable settlement, we'd better deal with him. 
Whether my father knew what he was signing when he put his name to the letter or not, it still would arouse suspicion with some people. So you're going to buy Dylan off. Boyd was disappointed and let the disappointment show in his voice. If you have money to throw around. Oh, but I haven't. The girl shook her head. I hardly have a cent. All the money we had went for doctors to try and save Dad. But it costs money to sue corporations. Mr. Foster took care of that. He took the case on a contingency basis. He gets half of everything to recover. But I'm worried. I'm afraid that Mr. Dillon has done something to him. Let your Uncle Samuel worry about that, Boyd said. You wait right here. Or better still, go on home. I'll phone you when I find out anything. No, I'm coming with you. He started to argue, but Sam Boyd was used to reading people, and one look at this girl's eyes told him the argument wouldn't do any good. Tiredly, he shrugged. It was bad enough to go up against the midget gunman without having a girl in his hands to worry about. Boyd was not kidding himself. Dylan was tough, and he had a lot of men around the horseshoe, men who would be as tough as he was, but facing them would be easier than handling this girl. Once and for all, Sam Boyd decided he did not care for women. When Boyd and Ann Norcross reached the horseshoe, the place seemed to be doing more business than it had been earlier, if that were possible. It was so jammed it was almost impossible for them to force their way through the press. Boyd used his big shoulders and elbows, and the girl hung onto the tails of his coat. He got a lot of dirty looks from people whom his elbows thrust out of the way, but he was too big for anyone to want to argue with him. They gained the door leading behind scenes to find the same guard barring the passage. He started to jump up, recognized Boyd, and took his feet out of the way. Okay, Max, she's all yours. Where will I find Dylan? Boyd asked. The guard shrugged. In his office, I guess. It's on your right as you go back, but he stores a boil. At the moment, Sam Boyd was a little sore himself. Like most even-tempered men, he was slow to anger, but this had been building up all day, ever since the blonde had locked him in the closet. He went on, conscious that Anne still followed, still had hold of his coattails. They must have made a humorous picture, but the guard did not smile. Evidently, he'd had enough of Sam Boyd earlier. It was not hard to find Dylan's office. They could hear the man's squeaky voice long before they reached the door. Dylan was bawling someone out and making an elegant job of it. Boyd didn't knock. He twisted the knob, shoved the door wide, and was in the room before Dylan realized he was there. A man faced the little gunman across the desk, a tall man in a dinner jacket. Evidently, he was one of the employees, and he'd done something to arouse Dylan's wrath. The little man was cursing him in three languages. He stopped in the middle of a word as he saw Boyd and thrust one shaking finger toward him. Get out and stay out, he ordered the detective. No, said Boyd, and the muscle along the side of his jaw cored a little. Not until I've talked with you, Jackie boy. Not until you've told me a lot of things. Dylan seemed to forget the man he'd been bawling out as he focused full anger on Boyd. Get out! You've caused me nothing but trouble. I hope I go deaf before I ever hear your name mentioned again. Me cause you trouble? Look, I got a nice, quiet, respectable business here. I'm minding my own affair, staying out from behind the eight ball. I've got an entertainer, the best in the business, a looker, that doesn't have to give nothing to any movie star that ever lived. So what happens? She meets his Roger Bowman, he makes a play. Now she tells me they're hitched and walks out. So where am I at? My customers are yelling for Laura and there ain't no Laura. Was she really married to Bowman? How the devil do I know? Does it make a difference whether she married the lawyer or whether she got one of her pals to fix her up with a fake license? I lose her, which is all that matters. You changed quick, said Boyd. The last time I saw you, you were backing up her game. That's your fault. You got tough. You let her see you weren't afraid of me, so she washed me out of the deal. She flashed the marriage license she'd been holding out. She said she didn't need me anymore and walked out. Did you tell Foster this? Foster? What's this Foster got to do with it? Miss Norcross's attorney, Boyd said. He came over to see you an hour or so ago. You're crazy. 
I ain't seen any Fosters or any other attorneys for that matter. But he did come over here. And Norcross spoke for the first time. He told me he was coming to see you. He didn't, said Dylan, and Boyd couldn't tell whether the little man was lying or not. He stared at Dylan for a full minute trying to decide. Then he said, grab your hat. You're coming for a ride with us. A ride? Who do you think you are? You're coming, said Boyd and brought the banker's special into sight. Better have your friend here come too. He might stir up trouble if we left him behind. He indicated the silent man in the dinner jacket. Dylan started to argue, but Boyd moved the gun suggestively. You know me, Jackie. You give me the greatest of pleasure to shoot off a couple of fingers. Your customers are making so much racket out front, no one would ever know the difference. Dylan wilted. Okay, Sam, okay. This is one day they can tear out of the calendar and throw away. I hope I never see another day like it as long as I live. Got a car? The little man nodded. Out back. Then come on. Where are we going? Roger Bowman's Ranch. You might as well make it quick. And that is it for this week's episode of the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. Thanks for listening today. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production. We'll be back with a new episode next week.